Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Now, following the show, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com and Research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, please like both pages. Well, tonight's show is dedicated to Mrs. Gloria Ramsey Lucas. Mrs. Lucas was the main impetus behind the development of the slave records of Edgeville County, South Carolina. This book was published by the Edgefield Historical Society, and it contains extractions from ledgers of estates, wills, inventories, appraisals, deeds, you name it, 58,000 slaves are listed in this book. So I am just one of those people who benefited from Mrs. Lucas' hard work. Well, tonight's topic is Slave Life in Documents, Primary Sources Regarding Edgeville Enslaved Laborers. Now, this is not the first time that we've covered uh, Edgeville, uh, South Carolina. We had Tanya Broider, who is the director of the Tompkins Library in Edgeville, and we also had Mrs. Gloria Lucas as a guest on the show. Now, this show will focus, as I said, on uncovering information, specifically primary sources that reveal data about Edgefield, South Carolina laborers. Dr. Morehouse, Maggie Morehouse, is the first graduate of the African Diaspora Studies Program at the University of California, Berkeley completing her Ph.D. in May 2001, and she teaches Southern History at Coastal Carolina University. So let me give a warm welcome 
to Maggie Morehouse to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Maggie. Well, thank you, Bernice. I'm glad to be here and talking with you. Well, I'm glad to have you. And, you know, it's one of those things that I didn't even realize. It seems like every time I go to a conference and South Carolina comes up, Edgeville is also another place that comes up. So I guess I used to think all roads led to uh, Virginia, and now I'm beginning to wonder about Edgeville, South Carolina. So let's examine your interest in Edgeville and what motivated you to look at records of enslaved laborers in this community. Well, when I came from Berkeley, one of my uh, first positions was at the University of South Carolina, Aiken. And so here I was, you know, I had studied African diaspora history and had focused on some parts of South Carolina. I have South Carolina relatives, and but had spent many years in the West. So when I came out to... South Carolina and settled around in the Aiken area, which, as you know, had been previously part of uh, Edgefield District. Well, I started to look at how some of the history that I knew and that I'd been studying in books, you know, all led back to Edgefield, just as you said, um, whereas we say, well, everyone, you know, most African Americans will have some relative who passed through Sullivan's Island. And that is certainly true for the number of people who came into the African slave trade. Uh, but um, starting, you know, after 1730, uh, so many more people of African descent were already born in the United States. And, and so when you look at these population areas, especially Edgefield. My goodness, um, many places in South Carolina, the entire state have a larger African-American population, but that's certainly true about Edgefield. And then, you know, if the tagline in that city is, you know, home of 10 governors, well, my goodness, when you start looking through genealogy and historical records, you're going to see that it's the uh, home of all these other people, maybe don't go on to governorships, but um, are all all walks of life. And the African-American community in particular is um, phenomenal, the number of people who are related to uh, people in Edgefield. And, and then everybody goes back and, and there's the DNA that shows it. You know, they're all DNA relatives. So... Well, I'm fairly certain um, that none of my uh, relatives had ever settled in that area. They had all been in Charleston and then in Georgia. Um, I was just enchanted with all the stories that I could find in the records in in Edgefield, and um, uh, and I was introducing students in my research methods class to different kinds of Records and one of the first classes that I taught was all about uh, finding uh, records of slaves. We, of course, worked um, through the WPA records, the Works Progress Administration, slave narratives from the 1930s, and those students 
uh, started finding records for Edgefield, started finding records that said things about Aiken, and, and so it was helping me looking through records to relate to my new home with some of the uh, past history that was there. Wow. Well, it's, it is quite interesting to, to think that your students would be looking at records and they start to see a trend in that Edgefield is mentioned in those uh, records. Well, since we are discussing primary and secondary resources, for those individuals who may be listening who are not genealogists or historians, could you please define what you are referencing when you say primary and secondary resources. Absolutely. And uh, uh, through my definition, you can see that anyone that uh, references these kinds of items can call themselves a historian. You know, there's not much difference between genealogy and history, except that you're looking up a particular family line, but frankly, that's what history is too. But a primary source for a historian is something that was created at the time, generally written, although the photographs are primary sources, and a historian will apply a critical analysis to that primary source that was created at the time of the event, and then use that source uh, by referencing to other sources and sort of compare and contrast, let's say, oral histories, if you will, that's my particular specialty, and look through a couple of different oral histories during the same era and be able to get a sense of what the history or what the event was like. So primary sources are uh, very simply just written at the time or created at the time. Uh, or are talking about a historical event from a first-person narrative. They say with journalism, like newspapers are primary sources, and journalists um, or journalism is the first draft of history. So a journalist, a newspaper person, goes out and gets the story, you know, hey, what happened here? And, and if it's something like an accident, then you'll even get a police officer out there and let's say, the police officer asks five people and the journalist asks five people what goes on. And, and those kind of records uh, will constitute a primary source. And somebody wants to see what happens in an event. Many times the journalist cannot reveal the sources, let's say, um, and the police records become primary sources that you may be able to look at to uh, to determine the event. But there's so many others, births and death records. There are um, marriage records. There were all kinds of records that the planters or people who, even smaller kinds of people who uh, traded in enslaved people and, and laborers and those transactions are recorded. I mean, this is, of course, as you know, long before any kind of computers where you can contract this sort of thing, but, but uh, there are ledgers that keep track of these types of things. You said this program was dedicated to uh, Gloria Lucas, and I'm holding her book uh, 
uh, in front of me right now, Slave Records of Edgefield County, South Carolina. It is phenomenal for the work of one person. These are records that have been sitting, these are primary sources that have been sitting in an archive that people could go in and research these fantastic archives in the uh, library and in the uh, Edgefield County uh, archives. Fantastic and uh, Tricia is the archivist there and she's very, very helpful. And Gloria spent a couple of years looking at all these handwritten ledgers, typed all these records up into like a, a database, and now these are actually available in this book form, all compiled and available um, at some point digitally. And you think these kind of primary sources, which had been there, now to get out to genealogists who are searching for family members or historians who are searching to see what uh, social conditions were like at this particular time. Uh, these kinds of records are invaluable. Uh, some of the ones that are the most invaluable to me are the uh, WPA narratives that the Library of Congress has um, digitized now and so students can use them. It used to take 17 volumes of uh, books to be able to read these oral histories of enslaved people. The oral histories were done in the 1930s and then um, transcribed, typed up. Um, I'll talk to, I can talk to you all about how they were uh, collected. And then they were in, typed up in books, 17 different volumes. Well, just in the last, gee, I'd like to know the date, but I, I think it's probably been in the last 10 years they've been digitized so that you can search by keywords. This is phenomenal. So you can go look for something. It's not that rewarding, but you can go look for something like Edgefield, and you will find uh, five uh, references, if you will, to what life was like in Edgefield, and I did that at some other point. So also in um, history for historians, for primary sources, we will also look at diaries and letters and, um, the, and photographs, as I had mentioned before, and newspapers. So, I mean, who doesn't want to be a historian to be able to read somebody else's diary? And call right, it and who doesn't want to be a genealogist? Finding a diary with your ancestor's name in it. I mean, you mentioned uh, this phenomenal book that's out right now, an index with all of these slave uh, information that individuals can actually order from the Edgefield archives. And what yes. you're looking at are primary sources. You're looking at original documents. And one of the, the beauties of the uh, Edgefield archives is that it didn't burn. <laughs> you know, those records are there. And so it's, it's, just, it's, it's just wonderful. Now, you talked about uh, finding diaries and letters and photographs, uh, you know, to, to get an idea of what life was, life was like in Edgefield is also something that genealogists, as you say, historians want to know. Genealogists definitely want to know because it kind of puts meat on the bones with their ancestors. 
So it's it's just really exciting to to know that records are there. Now I've uh, read some of your work, and you use a term uh, material culture. Please explain what this means. Well, I wish I were a better historian of material culture because I just think it's a an absolutely wonderful sort of subfield, if you will, of history. Because in its most simple form, it is, of course, a primary source, and it's just stuff. Like, it's stuff that people have left behind. And what does this stuff tell about you? That's a, you know, just kind of a simple description of it. But, you know, we all have something that our grandmother or great-grandmother passed down to so-and-so who passed it down to so-and-so, and then it comes to you, I'm, I'm looking right now at a little brass bell that is probably, you know, a dinner bell that I know my parents, you know, called, uh, it was my mother, called, you know, all five of us in to the, to the dinner table by ringing this bell, and that had been passed down from somebody in her family, from somebody in her family. Well, if you could apply the historian's skill to look at this object, this thing and determine where it was made and and its sort of story, if you will, then that material culture can add, as you were just saying, you know, some meat on the bones also to these other kinds of documents uh, that, that tell things. So you can actually look at things and determine their sort of value or worth in terms of the contributions that it's made in, in society. So I don't know that anybody would um, give, you know, give a hoot about my little dinner bell, but it came into, it's a remembrance of you know, my family, and I know that uh, my mother had picked it up in other parts. So material culture historians look at objects to see what they will say about a particular environment. And let's take a magnificent sort of Edgefield story that okay. many people know about Dave the enslaved potter, David Drake, and what he has left behind with his uh, very large, like, you know, two and three foot uh, vases or that hold vessels that hold foodstuffs and that sort of thing, and that they've been found places. And during the days of slavery in the, you know, 1820s, 30s, he's writing poetry on the side of a clay pot that's made from yes. clay that's from the area. And this enslaved man uh, has a legacy, this material culture, that we can determine things about his life and look for other sorts of pieces of evidence. And you've probably had the uh, scholar Leonard Todd on your show at times, but, or if you haven't, then you'll be interested in how he uncovered all the historical pieces of David Drake and how his family came to be connected to uh, this enslaved potter. So that is material culture. And any time you can find something, an object from the same time period, even if it maybe doesn't go with 
the document that you're searching, that just gives you another layer, another sort of richness to it. And I think let's just take a piece of material culture from today. If you wanted to understand someone who was, you know, of a younger generation and what they might care about, I would look at an iPad and see that as something that would be significant to tell me something about that generation. And then because so much of their diary and notes and other kind of journals and those sorts of things would be contained on that, it's both a material object and a primary source with uh, evidence that may be on there. So, Right. Well, we have uh, a comment coming out of the chat room from Shannon, and he says that his, he has a arithmetic book was significant because it also listed the names of his ancestors' parents, his six <gasps> great-grandparents. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's fantastic. Wow. And, and see, that is in fantastic. A of material culture, so someone's passed it around, somebody along the line probably said, oh, why do you still have that piece of junk? Well, that piece of junk, that stuff has his family history, I didn't catch the name, um, but has his family history, that is one clue that you can then just go up the trail and uh, find other sorts of clues. Sometimes when you look for just one name, let me give you a, a for instance, when we were doing research about uh, Governor Francis Pickens and his uh, third wife, Lucy Pickens, looking, I really wanted to, we were doing a film project, and I really wanted to know more about the enslaved people, 300 enslaved people uh, by the governor, Francis Pickens' plantation called Edgewood. we got to find out something about somebody. And, but I went specifically looking for uh, Lucinda, who was the enslaved um, maid if you will, of the third wife, Lucy. And a lot of people write about her. And she was literate. She could read. They even write that. She spoke different languages. But she didn't leave anything that we can find, and we couldn't even find where she was buried, like in 1899. And yet she's a prominent person in the Pickens' life. She even goes to Russia, for heaven's sakes. I mean, think of enslaved people, um, his other man's servant named uh, Tom Lee, also went to Russia. Uh, black people in Europe, and particularly in Russia in 1859, that's a phenomenal story. But finding the records of one person was kind of difficult, but we could get the idea of slave life, some from, of course, Pickens had a biography, and you could look through some of the citations that were there, but also to be able to track like one person. You might get just the best clue of all, but you just can't uncover a piece of evidence. But if you go sideways, sometimes you're going to see other people that knew them, other people that were in the same kind of groupings, and you might uncover, like in the slave records book that we're talking about, it's listed it's interesting. It's alphabetical by owner's names. So you could go in there and look for Pickens. And uh, when he made slave transactions, then the names are listed there. Regrettably, Lucinda's name is not there, but it's 
possibly because Lucy bought her uh, or daughter as a wedding gift, and and she wasn't transacted after that, and perhaps not listed someplace because she had some kind of significantly different relationship than the other 299 slaves people that were there. So sometimes you can't find exactly what you're looking for, but to know the story of how your grandparents lived or great-grandparents or, or family lived and to be able to uncover those, those records and to understand the time period is uh, wonderfully interesting and empowering. Right, absolutely, it's wonderful. And I'm hoping that those who are in the chat room, if they are descendants of slaves from the Pickens Plantation, that you will call in to just share with us what you have found out about your ancestor. And after the break, I will open the phone line so that you can share that information with us. Well, Maggie, there's a question coming out of the chat, and the question is, what is the best way to present data from the diaries and journals, and how do you get the story told? Uh, you know, how do you put mm-hmm. meat on the bones once you've uh, mm-hmm. reviewed this information? Great question. Number one, I think the first, Part of genealogy is that you are going backwards, even in history. You're going backwards. You're looking up specific things, and you're getting births and deaths and marriages. You're getting transactions. You're getting um, some of the milieu, if you will, of, of the time periods. But you're, but it's really data. And so, in order to craft the the story to it. You just have to look to see if some of the names and dates, like you see something, let's say it's in Edgefield and it's 1876, and you say, oh, my gosh, well, you know, that was the time of the Hamburg Massacre, which is North Augusta, the next town over. And um, and in that time period, um, it was the ride of the red shirts who – you know, we're going out to stop black people from voting. And so you may try to look at other kinds of historical events and then see if you know, what ways were your people that you've got data for them possibly impacted by this historical event. So you, that's what I'm saying, you kind of go sideways, if you will, to look at that. But the other part of your question was then how do you get it published. And that, I think, is the perennial um, question, even for academics. I mean, we always try to, well, it might be a little bit different for academics, but I think what we like to read is something that's got a a story to it. When we were looking up these records for, for the Edgewood, the house of Pickens, and then later of another person, Eulalie Sally, from that area, well, so you've got biographies of all these people who have a slight passing notion about this house, but all these 300 enslaved people were there. So look at the big events and then Mm -hmm. look at the records that you've got and try to write them into that. We did it in a film manner with reenactments 
of that. There are people who publish books, um, or I know children's books. There's children's books about Dave the Slave uh, Potter. Uh, that's quite fascinating. And then think about your family members will want to know more than births and deaths. So try to write in a historical timeline, if if that's even what you're doing. Like you've got a a, a chart of the whole family, but then write in some of the historical events from the time period and, and fill it out that way. But the writing mm-hmm. process, you could have all the data in the world, and it's a, a lonesome and a difficult process to sit down and, and crank those stories out and get those lines together and then get a publisher for them. Right. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it, you're really giving some good advice, though, because certainly we will be able to identify our ancestors, put them at a, in a place, but then there's a lot going around them, and it's understanding in what context their lives are revolving with these historical events and making sure that you can at least coincide that event with who they are and where they are. Yes, exactly um, well put that that's what you need to do to to flesh it out, to put the meat on the bones, if you will. And then it's to always think in terms of, so you could just document the events, but then think in terms of stories. How did all this history originally ever get passed on and why some of it was never written down is because we tell stories. We sit out on the porch and we tell our stories about who we are and you know do you remember um, Pappy when he did this or um, Mama did this or you know do you tell your family kinds of stories to the next generation that's reading it or the next person that's going to read this to say oh I I didn't know there were all these stories about um, enslaved people or uh, that were in Edgefield but they look at it for the context, as you said, and the and and the individuals within the the text and the context, the individuals within that context, and the story that pulls you forward based around as much character as you can put into it, as much as the people that you can discover. Okay. Well, we're going to take a break. I already see three people who. Push the button to ask a question or to make a comment. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. And the first person that I'm going to open the line to will be someone from area code 678. So hold on. This is a break, and we will be right back.
Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. Now, I have opened up the phone lines, but I do want to remind you all that we have on the line Dr. Maggie Morehouse, and she has been discussing resources available in Edgeville as well as discussing why she got involved in looking at resources at Edgeville. Okay, we're going to go to area code 215. Do you have a comment or a question? Yes. Good evening, Mrs. Bennett. Good and, evening. Uh, good evening. And good evening, Professor Morehouse. My good name evening. is Douglas. All right, I'm Doug Colbert from Philadelphia. And I, I'd like to make a comment to, first of all, to Professor Morehouse. Uh, as she knows, I'm a member of the Lee family who were, who were slaves of the Pickens. And for the professor's information, we have a living cousin who's a spitting image of Lucinda. I mean, a spitting image. So I, I want to tell her that. But yes, are you a descendant now, of Lucinda? Yes, we are. Well, uh, like uh, the professor said, I can't prove it on paper uh, mm-hmm. that we came from Lucinda, but we know we came from Tom Lee, who was with her in Russia, uh, Tom Lee is uh, I'm a descendant of his, but uh, uh, I, I just thought it was amazing when we saw the picture of Lucinda. We have a cousin from Edgefield who is a spitting image of Lucinda. Well, now, Doug, you can call okay. me Maggie, so stop calling me Professor. <laughs> like, I haven't spent time with you um, while we looked at all your fantastic records. Talk about someone who really knows how to go out there and find the story. So, um, Mr. Colbrath was a, uh, you know, did detective work for many years. So when he got on his own, when he got himself interested in his own family history, he uh, approached it like a, <laughs> a full-time job. And the records that he has, and that. Um, you know, that Doug, you shared with me and the story that you shared with me was just some of the uh, the richest time of my life for the exchanges that we had. And I'm uh, forever grateful for that because I believe that it helped to increase the story, if you will, that this uh, house where uh, Pickens and the, you know, 300 enslaved people lived actually came to life because I could imagine your relatives being there. So, and I understand, Bernice, that's, you have relatives uh, of the Pickens family as well. Yes, that's correct. I, I discovered through my own research that uh, my ancestors were given as wedding presents to the, the daughter of Pickens. And so I'm very curious, though, since Mr. Colbert is on the line, I would like you to just share with us some of the records you were able to uncover. Well, uh, to start, uh, I'd have to take from your the, the title of your show, 
from National Archives and beyond. Uh, I started at the National Archives here in Philadelphia, and I'll never forget. Uh, I, I, I went in there one one afternoon and pulled up the 1870 census, and there was my maternal ancestors right after slavery, and that that was the push. But with the uh, with Pickens, it was sort of it was sort of hard for me because uh, my family name was Lee, and uh, and trying to find the owner of the Lees in Inksville was kind of tough. Matter of fact, I didn't find any owners. And then I learned that they were owned by Pickens, and that set me on a, a different uh, path. And I eventually uh, went to Duke University, and I heard uh, the prof- I heard Maggie mention ledgers, and I heard you mention ledgers, and I found Pickens Ledger. And with my with my mother's family, as you probably talked about it, uh, Miss Bernice, before of, of looking for your slave ancestors through those first names. With my mother's family, I was able to do that with the first names, and I was ready to go to war with those first names with the Pickens family. <laughs> but when I discovered the ledger, in his ledger from the 1830s on, he lists his over 500 slaves by names. And two of the families had first and last names, and one of those families was the Lee. So I was able to trace my family all the way back to uh, 1830s, back in, the, back in Alabama through his ledger, because he always used the first and last name. Now, I'm going to say this. Uh, because I don't want to hold up your show too long, but I'll say this to the young folks today. There's so much information on that Internet. When I when I started, it was all going to the Edgefield archives, going to the <laughs> archives in Columbia, South Carolina, going to the National Archives, the Library of Congress, and, and digging through papers and digging through papers. Well, now with that Ancestry.com, you young folks can 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 sit at home on your computer and and do what you want. And I'll share this with with Miss Bernice and and Miss Maggie. Lately, within the last year, I, I always wanted to know why Pickens use first and last name with those leads. And well, I know that the Lees stayed with the Pickens even after slavery. Uh, yes. But but the, the tell the story of how I tried to make that connection with the Lee. It turns out that Pickens' grandfather was General Andrew Pickens, a revolutionary general. He fought battles with General Harry Lee, who was... General Robert Lee's father. Uh-huh. Father, recently, right. and and so in the back of my mind, I always said, well, those those Lees apparently there's a connection between that general and those Lees all through through history. As a matter of fact, Pickens' father, who was the son of General Andrew Lee, when he passed, 
Tom Lee was with him when he died. So Correct. so there's a, so Tom Lee, I know I can document him back to to General Andrew Lee's son. But recently I found a document that blew my mind. It's a, a letter that Pickens, General Pickens write to General Lee General Lee where he, he sorta of, sort of describes his, his life. His, oh, his no. entire life. So it shows me that connection between it shows me that we go all the way back. Somehow no. we all the way back with the Lees. I mean with the Pickens. All the way right. back to the Revolutionary War. So I'm well, so excited about that now. Well you are so fortunate and what you're telling I mean the listeners is that you have to understand your history. You have to learn and understand how to connect the dots. And it sounds like a lot of what I've looked at are the oral histories from the WPA narratives. And one of the first ways, first of all, that I find pieces of information is that as you're reading a secondary source, let's say, that means that it is something that a historian or a genealogist or someone has written that's evaluating primary sources, but it is their uh, analysis of those primary sources. It becomes a um, an opinion sort of thing, and we call it a secondary source. And, uh, for instance, I read a book called All God's Children, The Bosquet Family and the American Tradition of Violence by Fox. Butterfield, and in this book, the first chapter is about enslaved people in uh, Edgefield, and it ties into an overall story that doesn't particularly have to do with, are you there? Yes. Okay, good. That doesn't have to do particularly with uh, Edgefield, but you go look in the footnotes, and in the footnotes it tells you where things are located, whether it's newspapers, then you can go into the particular kinds of archives where they'll tell you are. So footnotes and a secondary source give you clues to go find some of that kind of richer, broader area, if you will. And then um, at the National Archives, even like Doug said before, well, so when he started, a lot of it was, you have to go through the records, you have to put on gloves, you have to go into the genealogy societies and places where their records were kept and have to always treat these as special kinds of documents. Now it's been digitized, and I was just looking up something, looking around in, in different places that were in the WPA, Federal Writers Project uh, narratives, and at the University of South Carolina, the their online digitized collection, you even find things like this um, one article. It's it's called Weird Celebration is Held by Negroes of Two Counties. And they're talking about uh, Edgefield County and they're talking about Aiken County. And they're talking about in the 1930s. And basically it's from this Bettis Academy, a school that had been set up in the Reconstruction era for the education of former slaves. And these, uh, every July 4th, there would be some annual prize drill, which is held at Bettis Academy. Here I am reading it out loud. It says 10 miles north of, of Aiken. 
and seven thousand Negroes attend together. So this is like an article that um, has come through the face there, and then they're telling you what the people are wearing, what they're doing. Seven thousand black people gathering in a town at July fourth to you know, for a celebration that's going to be this you know, drill contest of uh, different bands and things, and you think that kind of tradition, but how fantastic that it was, you know, right here in South Carolina and in pretty small towns. And also, you know, as they say, and it's like African drums that you hear. This is, of course, written by white people who are writing the newspapers and have little concept of black culture um, and trying to tie it, I don't know, trying to make a story out of it, if you will. But a story that I read out of it is that somebody, one, thinks it's weird, um, which I don't think so, but that 7,000 people, this is not in the days of slavery, but this is after, it's in the 1930s, have gathered together to practice with their music. And I can just imagine in Edgefield Aiken area, in these kind of up country, sometimes called back country, of South Carolina, that's just making people a little bit nervous. Well, but isn't that interesting that you're, you're right, you're saying they, they're calling this weird, and here you you have a, a newspaper accounting of 7,000 African-Americans mm-hmm. coming together to celebrate the 4th of July. I mean, this is an article yeah. that I would like to read and see what they're saying. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, when when we talk about all of these resources, and, and, and there are resources. One one of the, uh, I guess, the beauties of doing research in South Carolina is that you have the South Carolina archives, uh, the online uh, database where you can go in and, and start doing some searching. But I know that you also found something uh, about uh, a story, and this is the Quarterman. Uh, Wallace yeah. Quarterman, and I'd like you to share why was this something of interest to you, and and tell the group about how you found uh, uh, this information, uh, the voices from the days of slavery. Voices from the days of slavery. It's the Library of Congress American Memory Project. It is also from the 1930s. The oral histories that uh, the government sent unemployed writers and photographers and filmmakers and artists out to collect oral histories. And one of the magnificent compilations that they gathered together were these you know, over 3,000 oral histories of people who had been formerly enslaved. So... As my students, I think we started off this conversation, I said my first class was working on these slave records. It was one of the students who came up to me and was showing me, you know, I I was showing them how to go on to different, find different kinds of things, and and, uh, she popped up this screen that said uh, voices from the days of slavery and the gentleman's name was Wallace Quarterman and there's a picture of Wallace Quarterman and then it's unbelievable but not only is there a transcript of this man but then he's also singing 
and so you can hear it. So there were very few of these that were recorded. You can imagine a recording from the 1930s, um, the you know wax uh, machines and things. So, and his interviewer, if you will, um, was the ever so famous Zora Neale Hurston. Um, her eyes were watching God. Fantastic uh, novelist, anthropologist. Um, so this is, she's out, an unemployed writer, if you will. Government hires her to go out and collect these oral histories of former slaves. And she collects this, um, this singing it's from this gentleman, Wallace Quarterman. He said it absolutely correct, and of course I'm familiar with saying it because that was my maiden name, um, was Maggie Quarterman. And so for me to look at this, I know my relatives, you know, came from England and came into South Carolina in 1698. And I know that, um, and in case somebody didn't, I didn't indicate that I am white. And so they come here and they actually even go into Georgia. And I know that they're in different areas in Georgia with the name Quarterman and uh, I know that they were preachers and teachers, but I also know they were slave owners. So, you know, that's the uh, secret in the family, even in the you know, pages of history. And now here is someone who was either given the name Quarterman, maybe a blood relative, or was in some way connected to people. They didn't have plantations, my relatives, but uh, as preachers, um, predominantly uh, preachers, they would have had people in their congregation, and perhaps, you know, Mr. Wallace Quarterman, who you can hear singing from the voices from the days of slavery. It's too fantastic that, you know, I could have found a black relative um, in some way, someone who's related to my family from back in that time, whether it's blood or not. You can't have that name unless you somehow knew somebody that was from my family. So to me, he's my family. And and so I even found my own kind of story, if you will, in these slave records, That's, and it's magnificent. And to be in this way even uh, slightly connected to Zora Neale Hurston just feels like a, a, a gift. So these are a rich collection and sometimes you don't find exactly what you're looking for, but you'll it's so rich with the oral histories that certainly stories come out of them that you will enrich your own family stories. Right. Now, we have a comment uh, from Shannon, and he said, well, he finds that the WPA slave narratives were, were very challenging uh, for him. And yes. for some, and, yes, um, they may be mm -hmm. very challenging. Let me speak to that, and I know we've only got a few minutes, that you need to be challenged by them. The, the language in them, even though it was Sterling K. Brown, a great poet who kind of dictates how you should take down the narrative, it was specifically done to be in a folk kind of language, but it also evened out the the way that all black people sound from them. And then you've got some, uh, I mean, I don't know, uh, and not in the case of Wallace Quarterman, my relative, but in many of the other cases, you'd have some 
you know, white lady who would come in with her white gloves and, um, you know, be taught and could have been the plantation owner's family, you know, or the prominent people in the town and were sent out and paid a little bit of money to interview you about what it was like in the days of slavery, something nobody ever wants to talk about, especially at that time. What are you going to say to some, you know, white gloved lady? You know, you're going to say, um, oh, yeah, well, it wasn't that bad, and, you know, we had lots to eat. and and But you read through them, and when you see that that's kind of a similar type of story, you will also see that people do talk about the horrors of slavery, but that they talk about life within uh, the days of slavery that give it a richness more than uh, just facts and figures, you know, 61% of the uh, population of South Carolina was of African descent. Well, you know, that doesn't tell me enough. Like these troubled, uh, and and you've got to. It's more than take it with a grain of salt. You've got to almost read it, not particularly literally, but to find what the commonalities are to be able to write your own family into the story. Right, right. Well, we are getting close to the end of the show, and I just want to know if you have any parting I'm not hearing words. Anybody if you have any parting words before we uh, talk about what's happening next uh, next month. While she is waiting, uh, while I'm hoping that she will come back on, let me just tell everyone about the September lineup. On September the 5th, we will have. Uh, Bishop C.D. Holmes Miller, and she will dis be discussing her new book, Black Coral, A Daughter's Apology to Her Asian Island Mother. Bishop Miller tells of her uh, emotional teen agony of trying to accept her multiracial, multiethnic family as they struggle to fit in a one-box, one-drop racial category of being Negroes. On September the 12th, we will have Mr. Robert S. Davis, and he will discuss the ghosts and shadows of Andersonville and a book that explores the mysteries of the Confederate prison for black, red, and white inmates. Uh, Robert Davis is a senior professor of history at Wallace State College in Hansville, Alabama. Also, on September the 19th, we will have Char McCargo Barr, and she will be discussing who's in the house. Now, this was a show that we had once before, and she is going to come back on and discuss who's in the house and why it is so important for us to examine everyone in the house. And then on September the 26th, we will have Dr. Barbara Krauthammer, and she will be discussing Black Slaves, Indian Masters, a discussion of slavery, emancipation, and citizenship in the Native American South. And so I hope everyone will tune in for the September lineup and also just try to listen to all of the shows because all of the shows have a message for everyone. So I'd just like to say good night and thank you, Dr. Morehouse, and, re and um, remember. Well, I've got to come back. 
Oh, you're back on again. Okay. <laughs> I am back only in just in the last second, but so I've got to come back because we have so much to talk about continuing. So That's um, right. We have so much to talk about. And do you have any parting words to the chatters and the callers? I really enjoy talking about finding your place in American history, and I think this is fantastic what you're up to to give people another look at this technological way that we can gather as families and learn our history. So um, please, I'm going to be calling in to you and your lineup that you've got, and I'd love to come back on and um, get our technology working on the phones and be able to answer um, and talk to some of your people. Yes, we're going to have to get this straight. I'm I'm seeing a a notice from Blog Talk Radio that they have been experiencing some issues tonight, and so we will have to continue this discussion at another time. So good night. Thank you, Dr. Morehouse. And remember, everyone, that your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives and beyond. Now you can continue this discussion on the genealogy and history forum of Afrogenius.com and the research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Bennett. Good night, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. Good night. Good night.